Hello, Madeline. Hi, Anu. Welcome back to another episode. If you're just joining us, my name is Anu Kumar. And I'm Madeline MacArthur. And this is Bridging the Synapse, a podcast about everyday topics and situations through a neuroscience lens. Join us as we bridge the synapse. So what is stress? It's a lot of different things. That's true. It's, it's a lot of different things. There are different definitions of stress depending on uh, who you are as a professional. Right. So the word stress to a like a stress neuroscience researcher is going to be different than the stress that maybe psychiatrists or uh, family doctors use right. versus maybe you and I in regular right. conversation. Right. right. So for... From more of the research science scientist background, stress is any sort of manipulation of the environment or any application to the individual or the animal or organism right. in question that causes them to elicit a certain sort of panic or mm-hmm. fear response. Yeah. And so panic or fear response in this case, which we talked a little bit about in our fear episode, is um, specific activation of certain molecules and certain neural circuitry in the brain. So it's from an evolutionary standpoint, which is kind of where this definition is coming from, is something to signal to the animal or the organism that something is not ideal in this Mm -hmm. environment for me to thrive and reproduce. Therefore, I need to do something or change something in order to survive in a better environment. And that I need to do something is stress. Right. So that's kind of what the neuroscience stress researchers, that's the definition that they use. Right. And some immediate examples I think of are um, Anu and I are in a class where we read research articles and then we discuss them in a classroom setting. Um, And two of the ones that the class kind of laughed about were uh, these stress conditions where the researchers put a mouse in, say, like a tub of water and the mouse had to swim around and find a platform that was hidden underneath the water or they would hang the mouse by its tail and see how long it would struggle and figure out, like, why am I being hung by my tail? How can I correct this? Mm-hmm. So I feel like those are very, like, scientific, um, neuroscience-typical ways of testing stress. Right. And when you're talking about, I guess, from a family medicine sort of um, direction, like family medicine or psychology or psychiatry, Um, You could talk about stress as any external uh, stressors from uh, a product of our society, so like a product of civilization. So like finances, finances can be a source of stress, Um, like bankruptcy, not being able to pay bills on time. That could be a result of stress. Um, Stress can also be um, an overactive fear of something in the future. Mm -hmm. So saying like you have a paper deadline or you are stressed about asking someone a question or speaking in front of a classroom or a presentation. Mm -hmm. Um, So whenever doctors or psychiatrists are asking you, are you stressed? They're not necessarily asking you, um, how can I, are you worried about improving your environment in a way that you can reproduce? Right. 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 Um, it might, it might be the case. There can be, be there could be certain situations, but generally when doctors are asking you, how stressed are you? They're not Mm -hmm. talking about, um, generally your bare survivability. Right. They're talking about um, what is something in your life that is causing you um, that fear response, but it's not necessarily in order to reproduce and pass on your genes. It's more right. of can I provide for my family? Mm-hmm. Um, 
am am not getting enough sleep, so I'm a lot more stressed, or like I'm easily stressed. Which I guess you could argue it's like still a not ideal environment, and、mm-hmm. we're just like, I want to change、mm-hmm. that, but it's still very different from the pure evolutionary aspect、right. of all we want to do is just reproduce,、right. and whatever we do that leads us to that, then like that's fine. And if we and something happens where. We could potentially not do that, and that's not fine. Or an- another different way of thinking about stress、uh, that's different from the neuroscience thought about stress and reproduction and how can I reproduce. Stress has become almost like a state of being.、Mm-hmm. Is when you ask people, "How are you?" I'm stressed. Yes, it's, it's who they are. They their whole entity in that moment, or maybe for that time, is I am stressed. Hello,、mm-hmm. my name is stressed. Yes,、um, and I think that's very interesting and kind of. Unhealthy, definitely unhealthy.、Um, where we get in a state of being like, all I am is stressed, and the only way I can prove that I'm worth something is to be stressed. And like, if I'm not stressed, then I'm doing something wrong, which is a whole another tangent. Right. But which we will get to in a second. Yes. But、um, but I just wanted to mention it. Like that's another. I gu- I guess I would say like pop culture kind of version of stress. Right. Maybe maybe that's undermining it, but. You get what I mean. Yeah,、um, and I think there there is definitely a legitimate. There's a legitimate experience to feeling constant stress, so like、mm-hmm. chronic stress.、Mm-hmm. So people who、uh, make a very low salary and do not bring in much income, they obviously have to worry about feeding themselves, taking care of their family, their、mm-hmm. parents or their kids,、mm-hmm. providing、uh, gas for transportation,、right. um, any like other medical bills.、Yeah. So there is a difference between. Um, at least I feel like being stressed to that extent where you cannot provide for yourself,、um, whereas a little bit closer to the evolutionary、mm-hmm. neuroscientist,、uh, stress neuroscientist definition of stress versus I have a paper due and、right. it's it's very unfavorable,、mm-hmm. but you're not struggling to eat, you're not struggling to pay any bills,、yeah. um, but it's still a source of stress, maybe、yeah. not the same kind of stress. Your survival does not depend on that paper. Yeah, maybe.、Um, <laughs> it, sh- it shouldn't, but <laughs> I, I'm saying this with the thesis due. So my survival <laughs> definitely feels like it's survive. It depends on this getting this done. Right, and so I think that's a really good transition into talking about、um, different kinds of stress. So the、right. two. Main types、um, that we sort of hinted at is、uh, acute and chronic,、mm-hmm. right? So chronic is where you're just in a in a state of stress almost all of the time,、um, and it's not like oh, like I'm a little stressed about this project, so I'm、mm-hmm. going to work on this project, and then I'm just gonna、mm-hmm. I'm just gonna relax for a little bit.、Mm-hmm. Chronic stress is you are twenty four seven or very close to twenty four seven underneath、uh, a stress response,、right. and I it. I whenever I think of chronic, I think of like people who have chronic pain.、Mm-hmm. Like it's with them all the time. Nothing can really relieve it. It's just always there. So the other side of that is acute stress,、um, which is what a lot of which is what a lot of neuroscientists. Uh, call the healthy、mm-hmm. kind of stress, where people say, "Oh, well, it's it's good to be a little stressed out about this because that shows you care. Right? That makes you want to try harder to fix a problem or to improve something. Right? And it, I mean, some stress in your life is positive. I mean, think of all the times that a little bit of stress like got you going a bit or kept you motivated on a project, but it shouldn't be to such an extent that you. Resent the project or you absolutely hate it. It should just keep you motivated.、Mm-hmm. Exactly. I think a lot of people,、um, who at least I've talked to, whenever they say like, "Oh, like how are you doing?" Oh, I'm stressed.、Mm-hmm. Um, they are definitely going under the chronic 
stress. Right. Um, and if they have not been like diagnosed with like an actual anxiety disorder, mm-hmm. a lot of the times chronic stress can be self-induced. Um, which sometimes it's really hard to tell where that line is. Like, am I just causing my own stress or mm-hmm. is it something that I cannot control? Right. Um, and then I feel like a lot of times when, when people do talk about stress, mm-hmm. saying like, oh, well, just don't be stressed. You know what I mean? And it's that's not helpful. It's not helpful. No. First, yeah, first of all, it's not helpful. Yeah. Um, and I don't. there's not really an action plan with that. Like, how do you simply not mm-hmm. be stressed? I say yeah. this with someone with anxiety. I just, like, constantly yeah. live uh, right. in a state of stress. And if you are one of those people, I know I tend to at sometimes create my own stress, and that can be either from um, procrastinating mm-hmm. and choosing not to do something in an ideal time and then becoming stressed um, later on, mm-hmm. or it can also be... Uh, committing to too many things at once and then uh, you're just stressed all the time because you have all these commitments and you feel this need to fulfill Mm -hmm. all of them. And like chronic stress can happen to anybody, not just people with anxiety disorders. So it's not just like your state of being that you're under chronic stress, but it's just also your external factors um, that are involved as well. So it's like um, if, if for say, for whatever reason, tomorrow Madeline goes bankrupt for whatever oh, reason, no. right? And then she cannot uh, pay for food. She can't pay for housing or anything like that. Even though Madeline, as far as we know, doesn't have like an anxiety disorder, she is. She would still be underneath chronic stress. Yes. So your stressful situation is not, I guess you could say, invalidated right. just because... That's a good point. Yeah, just because like you experience it beforehand differently. Um, but even then, so and then maybe like two years later, Madeline wins the lottery. And now even after taxes, she's like very, very wealthy. And she doesn't have to worry about food or shelter or anything like that again. But she has this experience right. of being underneath so much chronic stress that it has the potential to have long-term effects. Just talking a little bit more about stress in our society, I heard this awesome podcast interview. It was only about four or five minutes long on NPR about this writer called Rich Carlsgaard. And he's written a book interviewing neuroscientists and psychologists and um, about people who are considered late bloomers. Mm-hmm. And his, the title of his book is Late Bloomers, The Power of Patience in a World Obsessed with Early Achievement, which when I hear that title, I just immediately, immediately like, yes, achievement and being stressed, like you have to be stressed to be achieving something. Mm-hmm. And if you're not stressed, then you're doing something wrong. And taking a step back and being a little bit more patient and a little bit slower with things, I feel like that's definitely my mode. Mm-hmm. I don't enjoy being rushed. I yeah. enjoy taking my time and being thorough. Mm-hmm. Um, so I definitely, just the just the title alone, I relate to this book a lot. Yes. Um, and he talks about people who become successful later in life. And um, what hooked me onto the interview was he talked about SAT um, scores and how prestigious colleges kind of trap American families into this arbitrary idea of what success is I and I want to preface this by saying like people who are young and successful it's not that I want to put them down um I just definitely know that not everyone can be that it right. is the top I'll be generous and say 10 percent mm-hmm. that's probably a generous uh percentage of young adults are young and successful and you know they've started their own companies or they've they tapped into how big social media was going to become and they found early success on YouTube or Twitter or Instagram or something and became insta-famous or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I'm not knocking those people, but they're not the majority. And they're not... It, it, it tends to make people... I know it makes me sometimes feel like, oh, gosh, 
not achieving anything. Mm-hmm. You know, this person was 21 when they started, like, I don't know, in their feature film. Uh-huh. And I'm, you know, now 22. And even though that's a year difference, I'm still, oh, I'm just so much farther behind. Which is, of course, silly, but at the same time, um, I know it's something that a lot of people think about and... I just thought it would be really cool to talk about, especially mm-hmm. since we're talking about stress and anxiety. Yeah. Um, so he, he the, his book is mainly about how everyone is focused on early life achievement and parents especially because that's when they have, I would say, the most control over your life. It's <laughs> definitely like, we're going to form a prodigy here. <laughs> right. <laughs> which, um, depending on if your parent was or was not a helicopter parent or depending on how involved your parents were in your life... Um, I would, I would argue that everyone's parents definitely had that goal for them at some point. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, you're going to be a great whatever. Or at least, like, a good percentage yes. of them. Yes. And I, let's be honest, we're probably all not going to be great scientists. We're not all going to be great uh, musicians or great athletes. Um, I, what is it, like, such a small percentage of athletes even go to the Olympics. Mm-hmm. And that's, like, the highest honor. Right. Uh I feel like I'm being a big Debbie Downer on people who achieve things. No, you're great. We need you. Um, It's just not the majority of us. But one thing I found really encouraging at the end of the talk is that he talks about how we achieve things in our 30s, 40s, 50s, and even 60s -hmm. that um, we couldn't even, that we just can't develop in our early 20s or even in our teens. Mm -hmm. And he gives such examples such as um, executive functioning, uh, management skills, compassion, equanimity, and wisdom. Mm-hmm. You know, we always look to our elders of like, oh, they're so wise. And those are great skills that will develop later in life. Mm-hmm. So if there is anxiety or fear of, you know, oh, I'm not achieving something great. Mm-hmm. And I'm 25. Oh, I've reached my peak. Right. If your peak is 25, you know, science is, or, and medicine has created such longer lives for us. You've got so much more you can achieve later in life mm-hmm. and possibly things that are even more important to you than uh, just what you can achieve in your 20s. Right. Right. Um, yeah, I definitely feel feel like most, if not all, of the thoughts you said. Um, I know, like, for me personally, like, I tend to compare myself a lot to, a li- to other people, um, and it definitely has to do with how we present ourselves to mm-hmm. the world. Yeah. Um, I know they're, like, even when it's uh, stuff like with Uh, like Facebook or Instagram or YouTube or anything like that, most of the time you're not going to post when you don't win an award or whenever you've failed a test or if you've dropped out of school or Mm -hmm. if you, I don't know, were fired from your job. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Um, Like it's become socially unacceptable to do that. Um, For, I don't know, it may not be stuff like Um, Like, it may not be socially unacceptable um, to post, I don't know, like, you got a new car or you are relocating for a new job or you're getting married. That's the big one for me because it's just like it seems like so many people um, around this age from my friend groups or like people who I knew and grew up with in my hometown, like, for high school, are getting engaged. Isn't that wild? It is really wild. But at the same time, it's also like, well, that is a milestone for them. And I, mm-hmm. like, after after having that initial reaction of just like, oh, my God, everyone's getting married. I'm just like, well, I mean, if that's what they want and if that's that was their goal with that relationship, then I should be happy for them. Right. You know what I mean? And it's, and 
I will admit I also have a really hard time of leveraging my achieving achievements against someone else's achievements. So in, so a lot of the times my immediate reaction is, oh my gosh, I mm-hmm. did not do as well as them or I'm not doing as good as them. Instead, it should be, listen, I am confident in my achievements, even mm-hmm. if they might be a different number or a different, like, I don't want to say quality, but I guess like in different contexts than yes. yours. But yeah. yours, your achievements should also be celebrated. Yeah. Um, and I'm, that's something I know I'm still personally working on it is very very hard to undo um because i have been doing that at a very early age i know i was definitely one of those people uh who grew up in um a community where like early achievement was not only um rewarded but Mm -hmm. also expected right um so it's kind of like if you're an early achiever that's like well, of course, like, what yeah. else are you going to do? You've made it. Exactly. And if you're not, then it's like you are so far behind. Yeah. What are you going to do? If you don't have everything figured out by the mm-hmm. time you're 25, then that's it. You yeah. know, that that's it. That's and it. and I really like the way that you brought up the whole, like, advancement of medicine. Because if 25 is your peak, you're on a, on a good day, you're going to live up to, like, 80, yeah. 90, maybe. At least. Yeah. At least. Um, so it's like, what are you going to do for the, rest gonna, of your life. for the rest of your life? Um, like you could have like personal growth and you could just like, I don't know, like sail around the world if you wanted yeah. to. But like, what, what does that look like? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, if your personal peak is 25, let's just go with that number. You know, you spent the first 10 years of your life up to you're 10 years old, like not really having that much autonomy over your life. You know, you were in diapers and then you were in kindergarten and then like you started to get into like junior high kind of right mm-hmm. at the end of elementary school, beginning of junior high. And then that's when you started to get a little bit more autonomy. But that's only then you had that 15 years afterwards leading to 25 to really start to develop more of your s- sense of self. But then after 25, you know, you've got, what, 50 more years ahead of you to achieve so much more personal growth. And I just, I'm actually very excited for that. And I'll have moments of clarity of like, this isn't my peak. Right. And then I'll go back into the deep hole of like, (laughs) why am I not doing more? And then a moment of clarity, seeing the sun and like, ah, there's, I have so much life ahead of me, hopefully. Um, And then right back in. And then right back in the hole again. Um, yeah. Which I will say, like, being an undergrad, it's we're definitely in a bubble. Yes. We're 100% in a bubble of, like, achievement, achievement, school, we eat, sleep, breathe this mm-hmm. all the time. Um, and I guess uh, this would be a good time to transition to talking about, like, anxiety and stress processing disorders. Yes. Um, so in the earlier part of the podcast, we did... Um, mention anxiety disorders, and we want to go ahead and dig a little bit deeper into that. So, the um, the whole the whole section that we have about anxiety disorders is what is mostly classified by um, DSM five, which uh, DSM uh, stands for Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. And it is used by, I think it's the National Institute of Health and Mental Illness, Mental Awareness, Mm -hmm. um, or Mental Health. One of those. It's the National Institute of Mental Health, I think. Um, And the DSM is a way that this this national organization tries to pin down what 
different psychiatric disorders are, um, with anxiety or generalized anxiety disorder being one of them. And I kind of wanted to expand on this a little bit because especially um, with Madeline and I having both had like experience in research, um, it's really easy to read a study or read a press release of a study and think that everything in not only neuroscience, but just science in general is very clear cut and dry with very, you know, nice bullet points. Um, Oh, contrary. Right. Um, And it seems like every single day um, that something new is being released or um, whenever I'm doing research, um, I feel like I'm learning even more that science is just an amorphous blob rather than a list of bullet points, um, which is probably not the most eloquent way to describe it. But um, there are so we we want answers to so many questions, and that is very reasonable. I want to answer so many questions, um, but it's very, very difficult whenever the questions that we have don't really have answers that go within boundaries. Um, so for anxiety for anxiety or uh, generalized anxiety disorder um, it is defined by DSM-5 as having excessive anxiety and worry about any number of activities um, that impairs a person from normal functioning right so when it's talking about any number of activities it could this could be uh, from a- anything from doing something as simple as uh, exercising or sending an email or having to cook dinner, or having to coordinate with different people about planning an event. And when it talks about impairing normal functioning, that means you are so consumed by this that you cannot perform at your normal level at work, at school, um, in your personal relationships, in your professional relationships, anything like that. And the tricky part is it can manifest in so many different ways. So what ang- what chronic anxiety or generalized anxiety disorder, anxiety in general, looks in one person, it's not going to look like that in another person. Um, and it's really hard to pin that down because it's like, well, we have this, this DSM-5 criteria for what is anxiety or what is um, insert psychiatric disorder here. But there's no clear boundary, you know, at what point does someone's anxiety or stress level become so much where it becomes generalized anxiety disorder instead of just being chronic stress Mm -hmm. or chronic anxiety or is if it's going to be enough to leave a permanent um, a permanent effect or if it's just going to be temporary. Right. right? So I did want to preface this whole thing by saying neuroscience in general, which we already know, is just really complicated, even for people who study it. Um, But it's a beautiful and also frustrating thing, because whenever someone comes to you and says, um, like, I've announced on this podcast multiple times that I have anxiety, what that might mean to another person is not going to mean to someone else who listened to this podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, And my experience definitely does not speak for anyone who anyone else who has either gotten diagnosed with it or who feels like they may have it or just throws it around in a colloquial sense. Mm -hmm. Right. So and um, it's interesting because generalized anxiety disorder actually has a lot of um, I think it's cross modalities. Uh, well, the lines are really blurred mm-hmm. between anxiety disorder and other psychiatric disorders, such as depression or major depressive disorder. And it's sort of like um, it's sort of like a lot of people who have anxiety, like who have been diagnosed with the DSM five criteria, have also been diagnosed with MDD or major depressive disorder. But a lot of the symptoms are the same. So it's like, are they two different entities or are they just different facets of the same thing? Um, Does it even matter if we have to classify them? You know, 
Um, so that was just like my whole like philosophy on like what anxiety is. I've been thinking about it a lot when we were writing this right. episode. Um, so there was a study that was done. Um, well, f- well, first of all, anxiety can have biochemical and biomolecular um, origins. And there is a study that was done uh, that was uh, published about how serotonin transporters and their genetic pr- their promoters in their gene can actually affect how anxiety um, is expressed is like um, is the phenotype of anxiety or the behavior that arises from that in other people. Um, so for the serotonin transporter, uh, that is a protein that sits on the membrane channels of neurons. So it is it is responsible for what comes out of a neuron, what goes into a neuron. And serotonin is a neurotransmitter that is often associated with happiness, but also stress. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so your feeling of happiness could come from maybe just enough serotonin, um, and depression could come from not enough serotonin, but anxiety can come from too much serotonin. Right. So it's it's a very complicated process. Just talking about it is just like, wow, it's a lot. It is. But it, it usually I feel like with the biological from a biological standpoint, it usually it makes sense. Yeah. Like too much of this. This is what happens. Too little of this. This mm-hmm. is what happens. Um, but sometimes it's not always that clear cut. Right. With some patients, as you said earlier. Right. So a lot, a lot of the times the biology of it makes sense, but sometimes the behavioral expression of that biology is mm-hmm. what does not really make sense. Or I guess I shouldn't say does not really make sense, but it's more of a, well, it could be anywhere from this to this and yeah. either, either two extremes or anywhere yeah. on that spectrum. Yeah. Neuroscience and psychology, it's a lot of spectrums. Yes. A lot of spectrums. Yes, yes, yes. Even in some cases with genetics and biochemistry, That's true. sometimes it yeah. can be a spectrum. True. Yeah. Um, and so with serotonin transporters, um, this study looked at how a promoter region, which is just a section of a gene that codes uh, for the coding of this gene. So the promoter region is just like, hey, you got to code this gene. So the promoter region, there is a, a uh, mutation on that. Um, and with that mutation on the promoter gene, it somehow affects the structure of the transport that's pulling in serotonin and like not pulling in serotonin, essentially acting as that gate um, that is associated with amygdala response. So the amygdala, as we talked about in a previous episode, is responsible with a lot of uh, fear response uh, and anxiety as well. Right. And so that is just one of many, 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 many studies that looks at the biomolecular basis of different psychiatric disorders such as anxiety. Um, But it's not only just serotonin transporters. It could also be something else within uh, like something that may be specific to the amygdala Mm -hmm. or something that is just like all over the cortex. Right. And if you're a student at the University of Tennessee at Knoxville, one class that we've taken here at UT, Drugs and Behavior, um, goes into the biology of these different disorders, ranging from general anxiety disorder to schizophrenia to bipolar. It 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 takes you through all all of this. So if mm-hmm. you're really interested in the biology, that's a fantastic class to take. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so I guess talking about some of the causes of how how does anxiety happen to us? Um, <laughs> part of it is genetics. I mean, if you've if you're parent or if someone related to you has anxiety, um, you're more likely mm-hmm. to develop it. Um, 
depending on different stages in life, or, or it's more serious with, uh, like, schizophrenia. It has definitely been seen to have a genetic link. Um, also, your brain chemistry, depending on uh, kind of what Anu went into uh, about the serotonin transporter, um, If depending on your serotonin levels, depending on... Um, Geez, anything, all of your neurotransmitters uh, levels, whether it be neuroepinephrine or... Um, there's epinephrine. There's epinephrine. Then we just said serotonin. Serotonin. But, yeah. There's a bunch of them. Yes. There's a lot of them. Depending on your neurotransmitter levels, it can lead to or exacerbate a problem, mm-hmm. depending on what you're uh, prone to. Um, also, your personality mm-hmm. um, is a big factor in that. Um, life experience, um, you know, you might not have a genetic disposition disposition to develop a certain uh, disorder or to develop anxiety, but depending on what you experience in life, whether as a young adult or as a child, it could lead to something. Mm-hmm. Um, stress is also something that can cause that, uh, which again can come from life experience. Mm-hmm. Um, a physical illness can also lead to it. Um, you know, my mind immediately goes to people who maybe something happens to them that they're bedridden. Mm-hmm. Um, and they can develop um, depression through that because they're not able to be as mobile mm-hmm. as they were before this illness. Mm-hmm. Um, so now that we kind of like talked about causes, we should probably end this on more of a positive note. Yes, yes. please. <laughs> yep. So we kind of wanted to talk about coping. I say kind of because, I don't know, I don't always like buy into the whole like, here's how you cope with stress mm-hmm. sort of thing. Yeah. Um, because I because yeah. like definitely there's always like, 10 to 20 articles published about stress I feel like like every single month and all of them say the exact same thing right and also like how you cope with it is not universal and also we might give this advice out and you'll be like none of this applies to me and if none of it does that's okay Mm -hmm. and definitely someone telling you like oh get over it is 100% not the way to go yeah you gotta have a conversation with that person or cut them out of your life (laughs) that is that's that's way too negative you don't deserve that energy yep so definitely the more I guess we could just like say some of the common ways to cope with like some of it is just like eating well-balanced meals Mm -hmm. (laughs) or just eating meals in general um limit alcohol and caffeine get more sleep Uh, which I want to just laugh at that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Exercise, deep breathing, um, and talking to someone, as well as, like, learning what triggers your anxiety. Um, I know I have definitely heard all of these points um, whenever, um, like, I would talk to someone about saying, like, oh, I'm stressed a lot of the time for, like, no real reason, and sometimes it can be debilitating, but, like, not always. Mm -hmm. Um, Just being told to get more sleep can come off as a little condescending sometimes, like, from yeah. my perspective. It's just like, oh, you're stressed? Just sleep more. Like, okay. What if, what if your reaction to, like, being anxious is sleeping too much? Right. And it's like, that's not going to help the situation. Right. So. Exactly. Um, and I don't know. A lot of the times whenever you're talking to someone and they say they're stressed... Most the most like ninety nine percent of the time you don't know what their environment is. You don't right. know what they're going That's through. A good point. Yeah. So like at the very beginning, um, like I made the comparison of like if Madeline loses like all of her money yeah. and she like I don't know cannot find housing or anything, she would be like super stressed out. And right. if she comes to me and says, "Anu, I'm really stressed," I would just say, "Just get some more sleep." 
like where Madeline does not have, not have anywhere to sleep. Yeah, exactly. But we may, we may not get to that conversation. Right. It just may be something like, "Oh, I'm stressed," and if I say something that's just like, mm-hmm. like very like inconsiderate. Or just saying something that's a little condescending, just like, why don't you just get more sleep? Yeah. Like they that might that might not make anyone want to open up further about their stress. Right. So if you're on the receiving end of hearing someone say like, oh, I'm stressed, or I'm stressing about this, this, and this, maybe instead of immediately jumping to, hey, this is how you can solve that problem you're going through, is asking questions like, why are you stressed? What's happening? What's going right. on? Um, you know, a little human connection every now and then. This it's not a bad thing. It's not bad. Right. Because, I mean, I'm thinking about how patients interact with their doctors or um, and how if like the doctors say like, oh, well, what brings you in today? And the patient says like, oh, well, my my abdomen is hurting. Mm-hmm. The doctor's not going to hopefully a good doctor is not going to be like you are not eating the right foods or you're right. eating too much or you're eating too little. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, that could be a cause. But if he's yeah. if he or she or they are just are just suggesting that right off the bat. And mm-hmm. it's like, well, you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed yeah. to ask as many questions as you can think of to mm-hmm. pin down the answer. Um, and that's the similar case in, like, research, too, mm-hmm. or people who um, work in, like, troubleshooting for for any, any sort of situation. It's just, like, where you never assume what's going wrong. Mm-hmm. You always want to make sure you know for a fact yeah. what is happening, and then maybe I can offer suggestions. And those are just, like, in professional settings. Right. If you just, like, start grilling somebody about what's <laughs> going on in their life, it could get really awkward. Yeah, make, make, probably make sure you have a, a good relationship <laughs> with the person. And I, and I also feel like your example about, you know, doctors, if you if you go into the doctor's office and you say, oh, you know, my abdomen hurts, and the doctor just immediately is like, well, this is what you're doing wrong, that, no, they would, like, do a history, they would do a physical, they would check you out, and um, I feel like that definitely relates to how mental illness is treated. It's just like, oh, you don't really need, or this is what I'm going to assume is wrong with you, or this is what I'm going to assume how you should fix it, not like an active, like, oh, let's treat this how we would treat, like, a physical ailment. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe it is a physical ailment. Or maybe it's connected to it. Right. Don't know unless you ask. Right. Exactly. Um, so, I mean, we started talking about coping mechanisms, and then we just kind of got on the soapbox. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, I think I think you brought up, like, a really good point of just, like, the whole concept of, like, human connection. Sometimes we just need to be reminded of it, that, yeah. like, other people's lives are just as complex, maybe even more so than our own. And mm-hmm. we are not going to know everything about another person or what their experiences was. And even if we knew to some extent what they went through, you don't know how they're taking it. You don't know how they're dealing with it or what other things they have on their plate. Um, uh, Mic drop, I guess. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, humans. Humanity. Yeah. Um, Be nice to each other. Just like, don't be a jerk and you'll be fine. And all of these suggestions we've said so far far, um, do not have to deal with medications. You know, maybe how you deal with... um, your anxiety or um, whatever it is you're experiencing does require medication, in which case it would that would have to be uh, prescribed by a professional, a mm-hmm. medical professional. Um, and there's plenty of stigma around that. And I think we've made it clear throughout this podcast that uh, talking to someone and if you need to seek medication is not a bad thing. Exactly. Exactly. And... Yeah, you pretty much hit the nail on the head. Yeah. Um, so I guess, like, in actually talking about other coping mechanisms that mm-hmm. do not involve having to see a medical professional, right. um, you know, we, we 
earlier we said the whole list of things. Um, and if you are interested in doing that or you really think that something like that is going to help, then that's great. That's really awesome. Um, but sometimes we we say we want to do something and we don't really have an, a plan or a mm-hmm. way to implement that. Right. Um, and that can leave a lot of people lost. And if you have any other suggestions of coping mechanisms, uh, let us know on social media. Comment. Yes. And we would love to hear from y'all. Heck yeah. Bridging the Synapse is produced, edited, and written by us, Anu Kumar and Madeline MacArthur. Production assistance is provided by John Kennedy from The Daily Beacon. Music in this episode is from Pottington Bear. We release a new episode every other Wednesday. We also release one episode a month in conjunction with The Daily Beacon. You can contact us via our email, which is bridgingthesynapse at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter, at SynapseBridge, and on Instagram, at BridgingTheSynapse. For more information about this podcast and check out what sources we use for this episode, visit us on Anchor, our Medium page, or our Facebook page, which is Bridging the Synapse Podcast. We hope you've learned something new today, and we'll see you on the next episode.